0: section four of the life of abraham lincoln volume two by ida tarbell this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty three the beginning of civil war part two after the firing on fort sumter and the alarm for the safety of washington the office-seekers fell off sufficiently for the president to announce that he would see no visitors before nine o'clock in the morning or after two in the afternoon he never kept the rule himself but those about him did their best to keep it for him he was most informal in receiving visitors sometimes he even went out into the hall himself to reply to cards benjamin purley poor says he did this frequently for newspaper men Indeed, it was so much more natural for mr Lincoln to do things for himself than to call on others, to go to others than have them come to him, that he was constantly appearing in unexpected places. The place to which he went oftenest was the War Department. In eighteen sixty one, separate buildings occupied the space now covered by the State Army and Navy Building. The War Department stood on the site of the northeast corner of the present structure, facing on Pennsylvania Avenue the navy building was south and in line and no street separated the white house from these buildings as now but the lawn was continuous and a gravel walk ran from one to another mr lincoln had no telegraph apparatus in the white house so that all war news was brought to him from the war department unless he went after it he much preferred to go after it and he began soon after the fall of fort sumter to run over to the department whenever anything important occurred Mr. William B. Wilson of Philadelphia was in the Military Telegraph Office of the War Department from the 1st of May, 1861, and in some unpublished recollections of Mr. Lincoln, he recalls an incident illustrating admirably the President's informal relation to the Telegraph Office. Mr. Wilson had been sent to the White House hurriedly to repeat an important message from an excited governor mr lincoln considered it of sufficient importance writes mr wilson to return with me to the war department for the purpose of having a wire talk with the perturbed governor calling one of his two younger boys to join him we then started from the white house between stately trees along a gravel path which led to the rear of the old war department building it was a warm day and mr lincoln wore as part of his costume a faded gray linen duster which hung loosely around his long gaunt frame his kindly eye was beaming with good nature and his ever thoughtful brow was unruffled we had barely reached the gravel walk before he stooped over picked up a round smooth pebble and shooting it off his thumb challenged us to a game of followings which we accepted each in turn tried to hit the outlying stone, which was being constantly projected onward by the president. The game was short but exciting. The cheerfulness of childhood, the ambition of young manhood, and the gravity of the statesman were all injected into it. The game was not won until the steps of the War Department were reached. Every inch of progression was toughly contested, and when the president was declared victor, it was only by a hand span. He appeared to be as much pleased as if he had won a battle, and softened the defeat of the vanquished by attributing his success to his greater height of person and longer reach of arm. One noticeable feature of Mr. Lincoln's life at this time was his relation to the common soldier. Officers he respected, even deferred to, but from the first arrival of troops in Washington it was the man on foot with a gun on his shoulder that had Mr. Lincoln's heart, even at this early period the men found it out and went to him confidently for favors refused elsewhere thus the franking of letters by congressmen was one of the perquisites of the boys and there are cases of their going to the president with letters to be franked when they failed to find or were refused by their congressmen but they also soon learned that trivial pleas or complaints were met by rebukes as caustic as the help they received was genuine when they had a just cause. General Sherman relates the following incident that befell one day when he was riding through camp with Mr. Lincoln. "'I saw,' says the General, "'an officer with whom I had had a little difficulty that morning. His face was pale and his lips compressed. I foresaw a scene,' but sat on the front seat of the carriage as quiet as a lamb. The officer forced his way through the crowd to the carriage and said, Mr. President, I have a cause of grievance. This morning I went to speak to Colonel Sherman, and he threatened to shoot me. Mr. Lincoln said, Threatened to shoot you? Yes, sir, threatened to shoot me. Mr. Lincoln looked at him, then at me, and stooping his tall form towards the soldier, said to him in a loud stage whisper easily heard for some yards around well if i were you and he threatened to shoot me i would not trust him for i believe he would do it it is curious to note in the records of the time how soon not only the soldiers but the general public of washington discovered the big heart of the new president a correspondent of the philadelphia press in a letter of may twenty third tells how he saw mr lincoln one day sitting in his new barouche in front of the treasury awaiting mr chase when there came along a boy on crutches lincoln immediately called the boy to him asked him several questions and then slipped a gold piece into his hands Such acts of liberality and disinterested charity, said the correspondent, are frequently practiced by our executive, who can never look upon distress without attempting to relieve it. As soon as the first rush of soldiers to Washington was over, and the capital was comparatively safe, Mr. Lincoln began to take a drive every afternoon. It was among the soldiers that he went almost invariably. Indeed, it was impossible to escape the camps, so fully was the city turned over to the military. The Capitol, Inauguration Ballroom, Patent Office, and other public buildings were used as temporary quarters for incoming troops. The Corcoran Art Gallery had been turned into a storehouse for Army supplies. A bakery was established in the basement of the Capitol. The 12th New York was in Franklin Park. At the Georgetown College was another regiment, On Meridian Hill the 7th New York was stationed. Everywhere were soldiers. Mr. Lincoln and his cabinet officers drove daily to one or another of these camps. Very often his outing for the day was attending some ceremony incident to Camp Life, a military funeral, a camp wedding, a flag raising. He did not often make speeches. "'I have made a great many poor speeches,' he said one day in excusing himself." and I now feel relieved that my dignity does not permit me to be a public speaker. All through these early days of calling the army to Washington, there was little to make one feel how terrible a thing it is to collect and prepare men for battle. So far, it was the splendid outburst of patriotism, the dash of adventure, the holiday gaiety of it all, which had impressed the country. There were critics now who said, as they had said before the inauguration and again before the firing on Fort Sumter, that the President did not understand what was going on before his eyes. General Sherman himself confesses his irritation at what seemed to him an unbecoming placidity on the part of Mr. Lincoln. The General had just come from Louisiana. How are they getting on down there? asked the President. They are getting on swimmingly, Sherman replied they're preparing for war. Oh well, Lincoln said, I guess we'll manage to keep house. More penetrating observers saw something else in the President, an inner man wrestling incessantly with an awful problem. N.P. Willis, who saw him at one of the many flag-raisings of that spring, records an impression common enough among thoughtful observers. There was a momentary interval, writes Willis, while the band played the Star-Spangled Banner, and during this brief waiting for the word, all eyes, of course, were on the President's face, in which, at least for those near enough to see it well, there was the same curious problem of expression which has been more than once noticed by the close observer of that singular countenance, the twofold working of the twofold nature of the man. Lincoln the Westerner, slightly humorous but thoroughly practical and sagacious was measuring the chore that was to be done and wondering whether that string was going to draw that heap of stuff through the hole in the top of the partition determining that it should but seeing clearly that it was mechanically a badly arranged job and expecting the difficulty that did actually occur lincoln the president and statesman was another nature seen in those abstract and serious eyes which seemed withdrawn to an inner sanctuary of thought, sitting in judgment on the scene and feeling its far reach into the future. A whole man, and an exceedingly handy and joyous one, was to hoist the flag, but an anxious and reverent and deep-thinking statesman and patriot was to stand apart while it went up and pray God for its long-waving and sacred welfare completely and yet separately the one strange face told both stories and told them well by the middle of may eighteen sixty one the problem of mr lincoln's life was how to use the army he had called together the capital was now well guarded troops were at norfolk baltimore and harper's ferry the points at which the confederates had made their earliest demonstrations The uncertainty as to whether Kentucky would leave the Union had imperiled the line of the Ohio and compelled military demonstrations at Cincinnati and Cairo, and in Missouri the struggle between the northern and southern sympathizers had become so violent that a military department had been created there. Thus, the president had a zigzag line of troops running from Missouri eastward to Norfolk. The bulk of all the troops, however, were in and around Washington. The North had been urging the President, from the day it answered his first call, to advance the volunteers into Virginia. Don't establish batteries on Georgetown Heights, wrote Zachariah Chandler from Michigan, on April 17th. March your troops into Virginia. Quarter them there. Finally, about the middle of May, the President decided that a movement across the river should be made, the object being to seize the heights from Arlington south to Alexandria mr lincoln had the success of this movement deeply at heart the confederate flag flying from a staff at alexandria had been a constant eyesore to him again and again he was seen standing with a gloomy face before one of the south windows of the white house looking through a glass at this flag the time for the advance was set for the night of may twenty third by morning arlington the shores of the potomac southward and the town of alexandria were occupied by Federal troops. The enemy had fled at their approach. The flag which had caused Mr. Lincoln so much pain was gone, but its removal had cost a life very precious to the President. Young Colonel Ellsworth, one of the most brilliant officers in the volunteer service, a man whom the President had brought to Washington and for whom he felt the warmest affection, had been shot the arlington heights seized the army lay for weeks inactive the one movement for which the north now clamoured was a march from arlington to richmond the delay to move made the country irritable and sarcastic perhaps the completest expression of the discontent of the north with the military policy of the administration is found in the new york tribune For days, beginning early in June, that paper kept standing at the head of its editorial columns what is called the nation's war cry. Forward to Richmond. Forward to Richmond, the rebel. Congress must not be allowed to meet there on the 20th of July. By that date, the place must be held by the National Army. Mr. Lincoln was as anxious for a successful movement southward as any man in the country but for some time he resisted the popular outcry, giving his generals the opportunity to make ready for which they begged. At last, towards the end of June, he decided that an advance must be made, and he summoned his cabinet and the leading military men near Washington to meet him on the evening of June twenty-ninth and discuss the advisability of and the plans for an immediate attack on the enemy's army then entrenched at Manassas Junction, some twenty miles southwest of Washington. The commander-in-chief of the army, General Scott, opposed the advance. He had another plan of campaign. The army was not ready. But Mr. Lincoln insisted that the country demanded a movement, and that if the Federal army was green, so was that of the Confederates. General Scott waived his objections, and the advance was ordered for July 9th. Before the battle came off, however, the President wished to impress again on the North what it was fighting for. On July 4th, when he sent his message to Congress, which he had summoned in extra session, he put before them clearly his theory of and justification for the war. This is essentially a people's contest. On the side of the Union, it is a struggle for maintaining in the world that form and substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the condition of men, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear the paths of laudable pursuits for all, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. Yielding to partial and temporary departures from necessity, this is the leading object of the government for whose existence we contend. Our popular government has often been called an experiment. Two points in it our people have already settled, the successful establishing and the successful administering of it. One still remains. It's successful maintenance against a formidable internal attempt to overthrow it. It is now for them to demonstrate to the world that those who can fairly carry an election can also suppress a rebellion, that ballots are the rightful and peaceful successors of bullets, and that when ballots have been fairly and constitutionally decided, there can be no successful appeal back to bullets, that there can be no successful appeal except to ballots themselves at succeeding elections. SUCH WILL BE A GREAT LESSON OF PEACE, TEACHING MEN THAT WHAT THEY CANNOT TAKE BY ELECTION, NEITHER CAN THEY TAKE IT BY A WAR, TEACHING ALL THE FOLLY OF BEING THE BEGINNERS OF A WAR. AS A PRIVATE CITIZEN, THE EXECUTIVE COULD NOT HAVE CONSENTED THAT THE INSTITUTIONS OF THIS COUNTRY SHALL PERISH, MUCH LESS COULD HE, IN BETRAYAL OF SO VAST AND SO SACRED A TRUST AS THE FREE PEOPLE HAVE CONFIDED TO HIM. He felt that he had no moral right to shrink, nor even to count the chances of his own life in what might follow. In full view of his great responsibility, he has, so far, done what he has deemed his duty. You will now, according to your own judgment, perform yours. He sincerely hopes that your views and your actions may so accord with his as to assure all faithful citizens who have been disturbed in their rights, of a certain and speedy restoration to them, under the Constitution and the laws. And having thus chosen our course, without guile and with pure purpose, let us renew our trust in God, and go forward without fear and with manly hearts. With these words, Mr. Lincoln started the first war congress on its duties, and the army of northeastern Virginia towards Bull Run. The advance of the Federals from Arlington towards Manassas Junction had been ordered for July 9th. For one and another reason, however, it was July 21st before the army was ready to attack. The day was Sunday, a brilliant, hot Washington day. Anxious as Mr. Lincoln was over the coming battle, he went to church as usual. It was while he was there that a distant roar of cannon, the first sounds of the battle only twenty miles away, reached him. Returning to the White House after the services, the president's first inquiry was for news. Telegrams had just begun to come in. They continued at intervals all the afternoon, broken reports from now this, now that part of the field. Although fragmentary, they were, as a whole, encouraging. The president studied them carefully and after a time went over to General Scott's headquarters to talk the news over with him. By half-past five, he felt so sure that the field was won that he went out for his usual afternoon drive. What happened at the White House then, the only eyewitnesses, his secretaries, have told in their history. He had not returned when at six o'clock Secretary Seward came to the Executive Mansion, pale and haggard. "'Where is the President?' he asked hoarsely of the private secretaries. "'Gone to drive,' they answered. "'Have you any late news?' he continued." They read him the telegrams which announced victory. Tell no one, said he. That is not true. The battle is lost. The telegraph says that McDowell is in full retreat and calls on General Scott to save the capital. Find the president and tell him to come immediately to General Scott's. Half an hour later, the president returned from his drive, and his private secretaries gave him Seward's message, the first intimation he received of the trying news he listened in silence without the slightest change of feature or expression and walked away to army headquarters there he read the unwelcome report in a telegram from a captain of engineers general mcdowell's army in full retreat through centerville the day is lost save washington and the remnants of this army the routed troops will not reform From that time on, for at least 24 hours, a continuous stream of tales of disaster was poured upon Mr. Lincoln. A number of public men had gone from Washington to see the battle. Ex-Senator Dawes, who was among them, says that General Scott urged him to go, telling him that it was undoubtedly the only battle he would ever have a chance to see. About midnight they began to return. They came in haggard, worn, and horror-stricken, and a number of them repaired to the white house where mr lincoln lying on his office sofa listened to their tales of the panic that had seized the army about four in the afternoon and of the retreat that had followed all of those who returned that night to washington were positive that the confederates would attack the city before morning the events of the next day were no less harrowing to mr lincoln than those of the night A drizzling rain was falling, and from daybreak there could be seen, crowding and staggering across the long bridge, hundreds of soldiers, civilians, Negroes, and horses. Hour by hour the streets of the city grew fuller. On the corners, white-faced women stood beside boilers of coffee, feeding the exhausted men. Now and then the remnants of a regiment or company which somehow had kept together marched up the street, mud-splashed and dejected one of the most pathetic sights of the day was the return of burnside and his men the regiment and its handsome general had been one of the town's delights now they came back broken in numbers and so overcome with fatigue that man after man dropped in the streets as he marched while slowly in front his head on his breast the reins on the neck of his exhausted horse rode burnside before monday night it was known that the enemy was not following up his advantage two days later the union army was reentrenched on arlington heights a revulsion of feeling had already begun the effort to make out the route to be as complete and terrible as it could be was followed by an attempt to show that it was nothing but a panic among teamsters and sightseers mr lincoln was asked to listen to a number of these explanations ''Ah, I see,'' he said to one vindicator of the day. ''We whipped the enemy and then ran away from him.'' Explanations of the Battle of Bull Run did not interest the President. He was giving his whole mind to repairing the disaster. Two days later, July 23rd, he wrote out the following Memoranda of Military Policy Suggested by the Bull Run Defeat. Nicolay and Hay, to whose history we owe this document, say that the President made the first notes of this policy while men were bringing him news of the disaster. 1. Let the plan for making the blockade effective be pushed forward with all possible dispatch. 2. Let the volunteer forces at Fort Monroe and vicinity, under General Butler, be constantly drilled, disciplined, and instructed without more for the present. 3. Let Baltimore be held as now, with a gentle but firm and certain hand. 4. Let the force now under Patterson or Banks be strengthened and made secure in its position. 5. Let the forces in western Virginia act till further orders, according to instructions or orders from General McClellan. 6. Let General Fremont push forward his organization and operations in the West as rapidly as possible, giving rather special attention to Missouri. 7. Let the forces late before Manassas, except the three-months men, be recognized as rapidly as possible in their camps here and about Arlington. 8. Let the three-months forces who decline to enter the longer service be discharged as rapidly as circumstances will permit. 9. Let the new volunteer forces be brought forward as fast as possible, and especially into the camps on the two sides of the river here. June twenty seventh, 1861. When the foregoing shall be substantially attended to, 1. Let Manassas Junction, or some point on one or other of the railroads near it, and Strasburg be seized, and permanently held. With an open line from Washington to the Manassas and an open line from Harper's Ferry to Strasburg, the military men to find the way of doing these. Two, this done, a joint movement from Cairo on Memphis and from Cincinnati on East Tennessee. It was to points seven, eight, and nine of the above memorandum that the president gave his first attention. Congress, prostrated as it was by the unexpected defeat, stood by Lincoln bravely, voting him men and money, resources he was not going to lack. The confidence of the country was what he needed. To stimulate this confidence, Mr. Lincoln and his advisers summoned to Washington, on July twenty-second George B. McClellan, the only man who had, thus far, accomplished anything in the war on which the North looked with pride and asked him to take the command of the demoralized army a more effective move could not have been made mcclellan was a west point graduate who had seen service in the mexican war but who in the spring of eighteen sixty one held a position as a railroad president his home was in cincinnati after the fall of sumter the fear of invasion spread rapidly westward from washington on april twenty first the governor of ohio wired the secretary of war that he desired a suitable united states officer to be detailed at once to take command of the volunteers of cincinnati and to provide for the defense of that city and the next day several leading men wired that the people of cincinnati wished captain mcclellan to be appointed to the position A month later, when West Virginia had decided to stay with the Union and Eastern Virginia had decided to coerce her to remain with the South, McClellan, who had been put in charge of the Ohio troops as his friends requested, was ordered to protect the Unionists of the section against the Southern Army. Early in July, he undertook an offensive campaign against the enemy, completely driving him from the country in less than three weeks mcclellan announced his victories in a series of addresses which thrilled the north they saw in him a great general a second napoleon and were satisfied when he was put in charge of the army that the disgrace of bull run would be speedily wiped out while occupied in reorganizing and increasing the army mr lincoln did his best to improve the morale of officers and men One of the first things he did, in fact, after the battle, was to run over and see the boys, as he expressed it. General Sherman, who was with Mr. Lincoln as he drove about the camps on this visit, says that he made one of the neatest, best, and most feeling addresses he ever listened to, and that its effect on the troops was excellent. As often as he could after this, Mr. Lincoln went to the Arlington Camps. Frequently in these visits he left his carriage and walked up and down the lines, shaking hands with the men, repeating heartily as he did so, God bless you, God bless you. Before a month had passed, he saw that, under McClellan's training, the Army of the Potomac, as it had come to be called, had recovered almost completely from the panic of Bull Run, and that it was growing every day in efficiency but scarcely had his anxiety over the condition of things around Washington been allayed before a grave problem was raised in the West. The severest criticisms began to come to him on the conduct of a man whom he had made a major general and whom he had put in command of the important Western division, John C. Fremont. The force of these criticisms was intensified by serious disasters to the Union troops in Missouri. End of section four.